Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hope you are having a great day. And a special shout-out to Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko. Love you all the time, Yoshiko. And here we go. 17 countries listen to this show. And who is number one? Once again, Ireland. Ireland. You are the country of countries when it comes to listening to this show. So kudos to you. You know Germany's trying to catch up, but they aren't there yet. So you keep spreading that news to everyone to listen to the show. Um, And you're going to love the show today. I want to tell you, since we're talking about someone from Pittsburgh, this lead sponsor of this show is Highmark. And they have been the lead sponsor for years. Thank you, Highmark, for being that lead sponsor. And AudioEye, who is a sponsor the first part of the year, thank you so much also. So we have with us today the one of the two 2019 AAPD Paul G. Hearn Emerging Leader Award recipients, Dustin Gibson, right here from Pittsburgh, which is so exciting. Um, So, Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, for our listeners, Dustin, our listeners, our listeners all the way to Ireland, um, how did you first become involved in the disability community, uh, and also, why as an advocate? Because you know, many people may be, have a disability and be in this field uh, or in the community, but they don't all decide to become a passionate advocate like you. So how did this all happen? Um, well, thank you for that. And I, I guess one thing is I've, I've been a part of the disability community and been advocating prior to, like, having language to say that that's what I'm doing, um, which I think a lot of folks that are that live with disabilities are advocates without having that formal designation of one. Um, so with that said, I've, I've been disabled, uh, received the diagnosis, like, uh, in my teenage years and then advocated for myself before knowing that I was doing that, um, but then once I got hooked up with Centers for Independent Living, um, that's when I started to put language to a lot of the things that I had experienced. Um, and then got connected to people like Milton Henderson, who showed me what it was to uh, be an activist, an advocate, an organizer. Um, so, yeah, maybe about 10 years now I've been a part of this uh, disability community in the uh, more so like a, a new era of activists and advocates uh, that are part of a disability justice community. Yes, I know. I heard you speak at the gala, and I was very impressed uh, with your work in that area. Let me ask you, when you first identified yourself as a person with a disability, was that hard for you, and was it difficult dealing with other students because of that? Um, 
Well, I mean, I, I didn't identify myself. Those are doctors that did that. And yes, that was a very hard thing. Um, because me and a lot of other people from the type of communities that I'm from experience um, trauma and violence that surround our lives. Um, the manifestation of disability for me was something that was, like, very hard to, like, pin down and didn't know if it was related to trauma or violence um, or if it was just something that uh, I was born with so, or it's something that I developed that didn't have anything to do with those relationships that I had to things that um, were violent. So th- that process, and it still is a very difficult process, of discerning between um, who is just a part of the fabric that I was when I arrived here and what are some of the things that I've developed based off of my experience. That, that's an ongoing process for me. Um, and, it, yes, it was very difficult based on how, um, whether authority or structures related to what I was experiencing at the time and how it was manifesting. So I wouldn't necessarily say my peers um, were a barrier to creating relationships, but it was more the structures that I was within, whether it be uh, medical facilities or uh, schools um, or like the authority figures at even events like basketball games, like all in how I interacted with that um, really shapes my experience as somebody with disabilities. Um, and those are the those are the sources of difficulty for me, or have been. You know, uh, it, you know. I'm glad you said that because people don't realize for many people. Disability and poverty go hand in hand. And then there's the intersectionality, which can include racism uh, or, you know, homophobia, whatever it is. But for many people, just violence, trauma, poverty, all factor in to disabilities. Um, And so that's really a good point. I'm glad that you said that. So I wanted to ask you, you know, I read about you. Uh, in addition to having the pleasure of meeting you. But what is Disability Advocates for Rights and Transition? What is that? That is something that we don't have a clear answer for yet. Um, Its its original formation was intended to um, uh, be a center for independent living. We did not get that contract. Um, So from there, uh, we want to stay true to the name and the... uh, uh, the definition of transitioning and also expand that. Uh, the Center for Independent Livings are, are typically uh, places in which support people in transitioning from nursing home settings um, or other medical facilities back into communities, um, but with a more expansive understanding of what is happening to uh, uh, people with disabilities that are also living at other mostly marginalized uh, identities or within communities. We understand that the transition piece could incorporate people coming from prisons or jails or detention centers or psychiatric institutions or the traditional state hospitals and schools. So the attempt is to find a way to uh, do that in, in a way that's like dignified and also it's building community in the process. So the actual organization itself is literally just that, is a formality as far as an apparatus in which we can have money come in and out of. Um, but the grassroots part of it is like really what we focused on, at least for the last two years that it's existed. Um, 
And it's been more so about doing the work than actually naming what the organization is. Um, so, yeah, those are all things that we're fleshing out to see what it needs to be or if it even needs to exist. Um, I'm, like, a firm believer in, like, people rather than um, institutions. So if, if it's something that doesn't need to be named, then we could go away with it. But if it helps, uh, if it helps us better the work, then... Um, we just have to figure out how we can utilize it for that. Yes, I agree. And you know, uh, for all of you listening to the show, you would be very shocked and saddened to know how many people with disabilities are stuck in nursing homes, which I refer to as prisons. And these are people sometimes young, you know, sometimes abandoned and it is just horrifying to me to see what has happened. People have been warehoused after uh, significant, horrible events such as a hurricane. I mean, people have been stuck in nursing homes. So I'm, I, I just get so upset about that, uh, Dustin, and I get extremely upset about the number of people with disabilities who are in prison today and the number in juvenile, juvenile offenders who have been imprisoned, the number of people who are deaf, who do not have any help on translation uh, that are in prison. I wanted to hear your opinion because you did talk about this uh, at the gala when you received your prestigious award, in your opinion. Is it ignorance, hatred, something that just happens for no reason, uh, where you can't define what the reason is? Why do you think so many people with disabilities are incarcerated? Well, okay, so I'm going to try to condense an answer into this, uh, but I I, I feel like this is a, um, this answer is uh, a, a lifetime of work, really. Um, and I, I, th- I feel it important to, like, put it into historical context to understand, like, the relationships between prisons and asylums and also the relationship between race and disability and how they've both been pathologized and ableism from a perspective that something is, uh, as a system that is not only uh, oppressing disabled people but non-disabled people as well, something that is more more truthful and encompassing of, like, the American project, um, knowing that uh, uh, at, at one point in time to, to run away from a plantation, you could be deemed mentally ill. You could have drapedomania, or if you were to uh, have a work stoppage on a plantation, that that could be deemed as rascality, which was also another mental illness. And the treatment for some of these things were uh, a bath and sunlight and hard labor. So knowing that uh, people could literally be caught running away from a plantation and taken to an asylum. Uh, somewhat begins the inception of how we view prisons and who they are for in America. There are places like Louisiana State Penitentiary or Mississippi State Penitentiary, Parchment Farm, where it, it transcended from a plantation to a, uh, a site for indentured servitude to a place for convict leasing, and it is now a state penitentiary. And it is literally the same land in which some of the same people have been on for, you know, two, four hundred years now. Um, So those relationships are very deep. 
there. Um, and when I think about carceral systems and carceral settings, uh, uh, although, like, I do agree with, like, people being trapped in nursing homes, like, I think the language around how we talk about it is really important. Um, so it's to expand our idea of what a carceral setting is, which includes all of the places I was talking about transitioning out of earlier. Um, but then, like, when we think about the reasons in which those places exist, and it is to literally disappear people rather than the, the problems that are creating whatever conditions that we have. Um, I think about, like, literally where I'm at right now in Braddock, and it rained today. Braddock is a suburb of Pittsburgh, um, a place in which over 70 kids have been killed in, like, the past 10 years from gun violence. It's also a place that uh, childhood asthma is, like, some of the highest in the world. Um, it is also a place where the, the literal land and water is toxic. It rained today, and every time it rains, uh, more sewer spills into the water. Um, and you can, you can physically see that happening in Braddock, the, the, the runoff. So I say, like, all of those conditions are the things that create some of the things that we are attempting to uh, uh, remove from our communities uh, with prisons. Um, and the people that have been put in prisons or institutions, the, the type of people have not changed over, over the years. Yes, there are people that uh, the, the disparities are, the majority of them are disabled. Um, and those are the people that have documented disabilities. So we're not even talking about the people that uh, we don't have diagnoses for. And there's a, big, there's, there's, a, there's a plethora of reasons that we don't have that. Um, and the prisons like, do a very bad job of actually tracking people. Like HERD, which is an all-volunteer organization, created the only database for deaf prisoners across the nation. Um, still to this day, it's the only database. Um, so I say that to say also within the prisons, because they're built on toxic land a lot of the time. Like Angola, Louisiana State Prison that I talked about, it's situated in the middle of 13 nuclear waste sites. Here in Pennsylvania, a lot of the prisons are situated next to coal-dumping waste sites. Um, so disability is developed and created at a higher rate in prisons and in institutions than it is on the outside. So there are all these, like, deep, intricate connections between disability and carceral settings. Um, but I do think that some of it is hatred, but also another motivation for it is, is, is uh, the ability to produce profit. Um, so that is not just on the people that are there uh, making uh, wages that are zero cents in six states. And across the nation, I think the average is like around 20 cents per hour. Um, but it's not just pr producing profit um, or being able to profit off of their work, but it's also the profit off of their literal body being in a cage uh, where it costs sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 to incarcerate somebody every year. Um, there are companies that profit off that, whether they're private or public, it doesn't matter. They are always profiting off of bodies being there. So I don't think that it's just for profit, but I think it's a way for us to uh, not do the hard part that is the work of accountability when somebody is harmed in community. I don't think prisons actually reduce harm in community. They just, like, remove somebody for a certain amount of time and then, you know, have stipulations on how they return to communities. Um, so, that, like, that's a very hard question for me to answer. Like, why do they exist? I, I don't think that people know a lot about prisons that don't, that are not from communities that have been disappeared through prisons. Like, I know myself, I, I can't count on hands, fingers, legs, feet, how many people that I know 
um, have been in a jail or a prison in my life. Um, that is like something that is just like inherently in me at this point. Um, and they're, they're geographically dislocated and into areas in which those people are not from intentionally, which creates communication barriers between people that are in prisons that work in prisons that are in the towns between the people that are actually going into the prison. Um, which makes it difficult to, you know, have a truthful understanding on not only what is happening in prison, but who is in prison, too. Um, so, yes, it, hopefully that answers it just a little bit. But I, I, I would say the biggest thing is because we don't have supports, services, mechanisms of, of accountability and restorative practices within our communities, um, prisons exist. Right. Oh, I know. It's horrible. I, I feel as if for many, many people, there is a blind eye. There is a, as if it doesn't exist. And, you know, a hands off and not wanting to be involved. But we should be involved because I am very familiar with HERD. I'm on the board of the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. Actually, I have a meeting next week in Rochester and have met a woman who is a teacher, professor there, that is the person that runs uh, HERD. And I know stories, horrible stories of what has happened to people who are deaf in the prisons, but as you said, there are other toxic situations that can occur to create this uh, whole system, so to speak. You know, that one thing you told me, what is being done about that runoff of sewage in Braddock? What, what's being done? You know, I, and for clarification, and I think that you're you're talking about TL. TL doesn't use like any type of pronouns. Talila Lewis is the person that found yes. it heard. Um, yeah. But yeah. in in Braddock, um, yeah. I mean, this is not something that is just like uh, individualized for a community like Braddock. This is across the nation in which like these type of environmental injustices, I mean, happen. Like we've seen like a huge resistance of indigenous people in Standing Rock just a couple of years ago to fight against something that is very much like what happens in, in, in Braddock and in Pittsburgh as a whole as far as uh, waste being dumped into the water. So this is not like something that is just for Braddock. And not a lot is done about it. Um, yeah, like we like Flint, Michigan is another example of a place. And uh, northwest Indiana and Gary, there's there's... There's a bunch of places in the U.S. They're typically places that are now occupied by black and brown, um, predominantly black and brown bodies, and people that would be deemed to be financially poor as well. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad we have people like you working on all of this. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, in our society, the disability community, what can we do to see people who are marginalized at least achieve more quality of life, in your opinion? Um, I, well, I think that's a very difficult question because I don't think that it's just uh, for the disability community to do something. Um, 
I really think that this is something that could be applied to, to any different group um, to uplift the, the, the quality of life for all of us. Um, and, and nor do I think that uh, just setting it squarely on the disability community to lift up the marginalized people within that community um, is, is really helpful. But what I will say is there's, like, all of these things that, like, are very difficult for disability communities to acknowledge at large. Um, there's, like, uh, I know a, a lot of the responses to some of the work that I do um, is, uh, like, something that we may call, like, oppression Olympics to see who's, like, the most marginalized. Um, and I don't think that's helpful. Um, where I find, like, some of the best work happening is places in which solidarity uh, amongst us is like uh, something is that that that's at the core of what we want to do. Um, meaning that be cross disability solidarity. Um, meaning that solidarity across other struggles, like so struggles for racial justice, that should not be separate from struggles for disability rights. Um, and and working in solidarity with other people outside of the disability community is super important. What I find a lot of the times is there's people in multiply marginalized communities. One, they experience disability at a higher rate than anybody else um, or any other community. So it's important to actually go there. Um, but when we think about the landscape of, like, what disability organizations, rights organizations look like as far as the board makeup or the, the leadership, they're typically white privileged people. Um, and I think that has to change. And it's not just that we're going to put, like, um, somebody with a different identity into these positions and that change happens. I think that the change happens, like, naturally when we begin understanding how other people talk about disabilities that are not, um, that are not privileged, class privileged, or, or have white privilege. And, and when we understand, like, that folks do have disabilities and they are doing disability rights and disability justice work, but they're not naming it as such, um, I think we can build from there. But the most important thing is to, like, work outside of those silos that um, at some rate been placed in, but some of us choose to be in those silos as well. So whatever we can do to work with other communities. Um, and one in particular, so, like, the idea of police violence. Um, this is something that uh, uh, specifically black communities have uh, in, in the U.S. have talked about for a long time that have done work around this for a long time, that have resisted police violence for, like, a very long time, way before me. Um, but this is something that impacts disabled people at a higher rate than any other group that we know of. The majority of people that are killed by police um, are, are disabled. But the disability community at large is, uh, doesn't necessarily do a lot of work around those issues because the, the, the narrative is typically... It's along racial lines is the reason in which people are being killed by police. So I think if, if we're to tell a more truthful story about who came before us and what they did and what has happened to them, then I think that we begin to do that work of like being where we should be to support our people. Like, like when we talked about the prisons being full of people with disabilities, uh, this is something that should be at the forefront of disability rights organizations. Like, there are human rights abuses that happen in prisons every single day. Um, but the disability community at large does not do a lot um, as far as, like, raising awareness or, like, attempting to find solutions. 
Well, we definitely have a lot of work to do, but you know what's important? It's important to have a young person like you as a voice and a wake-up call for everyone. And with that, we're going to get ready to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dustin Gibson, who is one of the 2019 AAPD Paul G. Hearn Emerging Leader Award recipients about that award. award. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dustin. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica. For those in leadership positions with corporations, governments, nonprofits, and educational institutions, please pay attention. Are you aware that 10 to 15% of your potential clients are unable to use your websites properly? At AudioEye, an advanced technology has been created that eliminates accessibility issues and levels the playing field for all. Make the Internet a meaningful resource for millions of more people. Go to AudioEye.com. More accessible, more usable, more people. Call on AudioEye today. Visit AudioEye.com. At Highmark, we believe what makes us different makes us better. Our differences broaden our perspectives and foster diverse skills which complement each other, creating a stronger and more vibrant workforce. It's this belief that earned us recognition by the USBLN and the American Association of People with Disabilities as a 2014 Disability Equality Index Best Place to Work. So we'll continue to celebrate diverse individuals because inclusion benefits us all. To find out more, visit Highmark.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Disability Matters. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joyce Bender. Welcome back, everyone. Happy to have you with us today. If you just joined us, we are talking to Dustin Gibson. I, as you know, although this show is heard throughout the world, am headquartered right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So when I found out that Dustin, who won this 
prestigious national award is also from Pittsburgh. Oh, I'm so excited and so proud of him and the work that he is doing. Um, and Dustin, I wanted to ask you about this Paul G. Hearn Award. First of all, what did you think about receiving it? And what are your plans as far as what you're going to do with the award? So I, I was, I'm really grateful anytime I have an opportunity to expand the work that we are doing. Um, I view it to, like, be very urgent and, like, critical and at times life-saving. So any opportunity to expand that and, like, to continue doing it is, like, something that I am really, uh, I, I deeply appreciate. Um, but, and, and for the award, the project is, is going to be led and developed by young people, which is also something that's very exciting for me to be able to support young people in uh, imagining a new reality, really. Um, so I'll be working with youth uh, that have disabilities that are either currently incarcerated or um, are formerly incarcerated and leading them in a cohort to uh, develop language around the experiences that they've had, one, um, to develop uh, disability conscious, to understand uh, the different models that are recognized as disabilities and possibly create their own model and, and, and think through different ways of thinking about um, disability and also how that relates to other situations or experiences that they've had. Um, and then from that, really to uh, allow them the space and opportunity to develop the things that they want to out, um, out of that in order to, to reach their peers. Um, so I know we talked a lot about, like, different ways that might look. Um, but I am, like, uh, also another big believer in, like, uh, the creativity of young people. And I don't want to stifle that by, by saying that we need to create a report or we need to have an event. Um, or we need to do something that I am, I've been programmed to do in order to spread the work. So it's, I'm really going to put the onus and responsibility on them that after I teach them as, as, as much as I can in the, in a 10 week period, that then they could have the, the language now to go and develop something that will impact not only their lives, but, uh, to bring more people into this movement. Well, you know what? I love young people. You know, I love working with young people with disabilities. And yes, the thinking is different, but is that not what we want? We want the thinking to be different. And I, I love the voice of young people. You know, I, I think we all need to hear that voice. So that's why I'm so excited we have you, Dustin, who will now be recognized as not just a disability advocate, disability rights advocate here but nationally and and that is so awesome were you surprised dustin when you received the award yeah i was uh a, a, a little bit surprised um because like we said earlier it's like a, a lot of disability rights organizations don't do a lot of work around uh prisons or jails and also i'm somebody that is an abolitionist and that that could be viewed to be radical uh, for some people. So the fact that uh, they were willing to, to not only give me the award, but give me a, a platform to talk about the award, um, to stand by me in doing that work, 
um, was a bit surprising, but it's also like to me like a confirmation that um, uh, some of the conversations that have happened over the last couple of decades it has actually like started to change the way in which people view carceral settings, uh, policing, all of those things. So I'm I'm energized by that. Um, that an organization like AAPD would support the work um, that at its core is like abolitionist uh, theory and uh, building a better reality than we have now and, and, and prisons really not existing in the way that they do now um, in the future. So surprised, but also like uh, deeply appreciative that they would um, possibly go out on a limb to do that. Tell me, uh, Dustin, how, why are you viewed as an abolitionist? Um, I, I think, and this goes back to like some of the reasons in which like uh, the, the prisons may exist, and that's not something that I have uh, uh, an answer to. That's one of the questions that animate like the work that I do. Um, why do prisons exist? And um, if I know that there are places and there are sites of harm, and and, and the prisons themselves are not repairing any of the harm that is done in community, then I know that they're not the solution that, that we need. Um, also, prisons themselves are, are uh, a project of reform. Like, the current prison system now has been reformed over hundreds of years, so um, I don't think that it could actually be saved from reform. I think it, it needs to be um, completely abolished, and, and that's less about the destruction of, like, a physical prison, and that's not about not holding people accountable or not um, uh, providing atonement. I think without prisons, like, we have a, a, a real chance of actually having accountability because what prisons do is they remove somebody from the process that we've been going through um, a restorative justice uh, a model or a process of accountability. So to find new solutions and new ways to do that is what abolition is about to me is to imagine a world in which um, we don't have the conditions necessary for a prison to exist. Um, and that looks like that's why I rely on young people a lot, and that's why I feel it important for young people that are incarcerated to be in this work because they're the closest to the problem, so I know that they're the closest to the solution as well. Um, and to imagine, like, what do we want the future to look like, not even 30 years from now, not even 40 years, but, like, in the lineage of what my ancestors talked about and, and what does the future look like for them while they were enslaved. Um, so I think about that a lot as I, I, I think about abolition. Like, there, there was people that fought for the abolition of slavery, and they were born enslaved and they died enslaved, and they didn't get to see that future. And I know for me this is a, this is a struggle that um, I probably won't get to see that future, but... The work is about animating something that um, I probably won't get to see, um, but it's laying the foundation for that. Um, so th does that answer the question around abolition? Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, I understand exactly what you mean. And I think that it's good for you to even crystallize it for our listeners. But, yes, I do understand what you mean. And I know you have a lot of experience now working with young people. I know that you have worked with schools. Uh, could you share a story about that with our listeners? Um, yeah. Uh, so um, the kids joke a lot, <laughs> which is like 
which is like uh, solace because the work is like really heavy sometimes. Um, so everything that I derive from them is like a lot of energy. But um, I would say probably the thing that stands out most to me is like one of the days in which I went to a prison in the morning and then a kid jail. A lot of places call them like detention centers. So like being intentional with language, like I refer to it as a kid jail. And then from there to a school, um, and in all three locations, uh, uh, the uniforms were the same color um, at the prison, at the jail, and at the school. Um, the process of me entering, giving my ID, going through a metal detector, uh, having to be wanted, um, giving my personal possessions to somebody to put in the locker, uh, turning off my phone, like all of the, the, the processes were, were eerily similar to one another. Um, and the conversations that we were having, and the things that were happening there, too. So one of the schools, uh, an administrator had just assaulted uh, uh, one of the students there. And then at the jail, there was a, a, a CO, that, a cop in the jail that had uh, uh, fought or abused like one of the kids there. And then at the prison, they had a lockdown because of um, uh, like in, uh, people fighting. So there was like all of these things that, like, created like this moment of like connection for me and I and then like it, that wasn't the only point because people have talked about this for for a very long time and I was aware of it but it was a visceral experience for me to go to those three different sites and the purpose of each site supposed supposed to be different and they were like really similar so um, yeah, that's one thing that I would like to share is just like that connection between all of those places. Well, um, there are a lot of young people listening to you talk right now, uh, Dustin, and I have had young people tell me that how do I become a disability rights advocate and I want to be a disability rights advocate. What, ad- what advice do you have for them? Um, that education is the, the, uh, should be at the center of everything that we do, and that's not necessarily formal education, not talking about post-secondary school or even high school at that matter, um, or even the things that were taught in school, uh, traditionally in U.S. schools. Um, I'm talking about education of, uh, uh, the people that have come before, so we're not attempting to recreate things that somebody else has already done, um, and education of, like, what our positions in the world is, um, and that allows us to, to have perspective to, like, build sustainable movements. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the key. That, that could come through books. That could come through conversations. That could come through podcasts. That could come through videos. That could come through uh, uh, reading news or Twitter. Um, but that process of education, knowing that it's a, a lifelong journey, and keeping that at the core of whatever we do. Um, so, it, for example, like any type of organizing work, or even if it's a protest like that I engage in, um, there's always a learning objective, and there's, a, there, there's something that we are attempting to learn from that. Um, so I would say that that's probably been the most important thing for me, so that's something that I would, I would pass on. Well, I hope all of you young people are listening. And if you want to share this with other friends of yours, you can hear this show on Apple. You can get the podcast on Apple, Spotify, 
either one and listen to the show again or tell other young people about it. Um, I, I know that I know this would be a great thing to share with other people. So you know what, Dustin, here you are. You have this passion, this advocacy. All of this comes from somewhere. So tell me, who is your role model? Um, I have a lot of role, uh, role models. Uh, one, my mother and father. Um, both of them, like, people that have I've done amazing things for me. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of my family and a lot of the people, family that I know and I don't know. Um, I'm thinking about my great-grandmother right now, somebody who uh, my grandmother had 15 kids, uh, um, and my great-grandmother is somebody that adopted kids and then took her family across the U.S. in the the middle of the 1960s to a place that was predominantly white and she had a shotgun and she uh, um, uh, uh, protected her family and and all of the strength in which she had and and also knowing that she was the first generation uh, uh, person in America that was free. Um, so to have that type of like uh, ambition to, to to want better for her family and then to actually make moves to put her family in that position um, and then to take in other people's um, kids because she understood that uh, they might have a better chance at having a, 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 a better quality of life uh, if they went with her. Like, so there's like, and there's, there's more to her story than just that, but um, that's somebody that I look to for, for strength a lot of the time um, and, and like to think that I inherited some of what I do from her. And do you have other role models? Yeah, there's uh, and there's there's people that I work with that are also my role models. There's young people like right now. I'm thinking of somebody, Khalil Darden from Pittsburgh, who has uh, led young people in this very moment over the past two weeks. Um, somebody that I look up to. There's there's people like Talila Lewis that we mentioned earlier. Um, somebody that has uh, that goes into to, to spaces that a lot of people don't go into and does it with. Uh, such authority and uh, clarity that that I admire. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's there's people like Josh Williams who uh, sacrificed his own freedom in order to tell people what was happening in Ferguson. Um, there's people like Mumia Abu Jamal that have written uh, a lot and have talked about um, things in ways that have expanded how I think about the world. Um, and this is also a question that, uh, depending on when you ask me and what I think, what I'm thinking about and what I'm experiencing at the moment, it'll change. But I have, I have hundreds of role models. Um, Mariam Kaba is somebody that, uh, has, has taught me so much about abolition and, and not just about abolition, but about the victories in which we've had, um, and how those victories have taken place. Um, and there's just so many people that uh, it is very hard to name just a few of them. Well, there are a lot of them, aren't there? In our life, there are all so many. Well, they had a great impact on you, that's for sure, um, Dustin. And you, you can tell what kind of person you are just by taking time to mention all those people. You can tell what a good person that you are. 
So, Dustin, you have already accomplished so much in your life at such a young age. I mean, when I read your bio, holy cow, you're doing so many things and you've done so many things. But what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? Um, I would, the, the ability to stay grounded. Um, I think that that's my greatest accomplishment next to uh, still being alive. There's, there's, there's long periods in my life that um, I didn't know if I would be alive the next week or the next year or necessarily think about it. Um, somebody that has psychiatric disabilities and have, have gone through depression and, and will, again, go through depression. So surviving is like uh, top of, of, of my list of accomplishments, but... Um, also, uh, regaining and, and finding the ability to want to live and not just live, but live a full life in love, um, that is probably, like, what I would view to be a greatest accomplishment and staying grounded. So I'm very proud that, like, I, I've, I've moved to a lot of places, but uh, the people in which I grew up with are still uh, the, the people that I engage with, the people that I do work for, the people that I do work with. Um, so I'm proud to have not lost myself in navigating through institutions that were not designed for people like me to be in them, and at times, like, uh, respond violently to either what I say there, what I do there, or just me physically being there. Um, so surviving that, and not only just surviving it, but doing it while wanting to live and and loving, and then and then being in community with the same people that um, taught me things like how to ride a bike or throw a football or how to fight or how to not fight. or how to, So I'm, I'm proud to stay connected to the people that I come from. Right. Well, for people uh, not only marginalized but with psychiatric disabilities, do you feel that our mental health system is failing a lot of those people? Yeah, so I think that some of the systems are designed to do exactly what they're doing, and I don't think that that is doing things that improve the lives of people. Um, By and large, uh, I can't think about the mental health system separate from that of the prison system, um, just even based off the process of deinstitutionalization and the rise in mass incarceration, there are like clear indicators as to how they are connected. Um, and that's not even, that's, that's outside of the visceral experiences of what it looks like to be 302 or involuntary committed and all of the ways in which we treat and talk about mental health and associate it falsely with violence. Um, so no, I don't think that it's working now. I, I don't know if it was designed to not uh, to to not work. Um, so yeah, it, it's 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 not doing what I think we we could do in order to support each other. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you because I'm on the. Uh, uh, I just joined the board of the National Bazelon Center for Mental Health Policy, and I do think that we have so far to go. And what do I talk about all the time? Stop equating mental health with violence. Every time I hear that, 
We had a shooter. We had a killing. We need to take away guns. And I agree with that part. But then they get into with and people with mental illness, which is, in fact, meaning mental illness, as they refer to it, mental illness, violence go hand in hand. That is so not true. More people hurt themselves with a mental health disability than anyone else. And all that does is just add to the stigma that already exists and makes it worse. So I agree with you. You hit my hot button there. So, Dustin, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Um, I would say is like maybe like find what you're good at um, and find just like a few people and and then do what you can. Um, I don't think that movements are necessarily these, uh, these moments in time where there's general consensus on everything and there's a mass mobilization of people that get things done. I think movements are because there are three and four people that get together and are committed and are dedicated and do the work um, that some don't want to do that some can't do that that um, some will fight you in doing. So I think that it, it, it's super important, especially in 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 moments like this, in which it feels like um, there's somewhat of a uh, of of an awareness that has been rising, and and people are thinking about social justice broadly in a different way. I think that it's it's important for us to like find our people, like just like a couple of people. And then do the very hard work, and we'll we'll see outcomes from that. Um, and really, just do that in our lane. Um, I think that that's really important. Um, that's something that I'm trying to to re remember every time something happens, and and there's a movement that is reactionary to something happening. Is I'm trying to re remember to just keep my head down and continue doing the work um, because I know the reasons in which I do it. Um, and that's rooted in, like, a long traditional history. So, uh, yeah, I have that on my side. And I think that if a lot more of us did that, then we'd be better off. Well, that's right. And you keep doing it. First of all, Dustin, thank you be- for being with us. I want you to lead on, continue doing what you're doing. Uh, you are so awesome. And before we end the show, we always end with a quote And today, it goes hand in hand with Dustin, and that is, we acquire the strength we have overcome, said Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, at voiceamerica.com. I will talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.